This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. We welcome you to Bite Into It, where we discuss computing, technology, the internet, encryption, uh, all kinds of interesting stuff. Uh, tonight on the show, you are joined by Joe Eaton. Joe, how are you tonight? I'm very well, Warren. How are you? Pretty good for a Wednesday. Um, I did. I was in the vinyl room before looking for a, a record to post, and um, I did pick a weird one from Suicidal Tendencies, and the track um, "How Can We Love Tomorrow When We Can't Even Smile Today." So it was a bit of that going on today. It was a bit of a weird day. But how's technology been for you this week? Have you been winning, losing? I feel like it's been invisible, which is kind of what you want, really, isn't it? Mm. Oh, the the uh, nirvana that mm. people prophesy about has uh, has come true for you. No issues. Uh, also in the studio tonight, we have James Noble. James, how are you? I'm pretty good. Yeah? Yeah, I think technology isn't working all right for me today. Yeah? I've... Uh, I think I'm starting to get the same thing. I'm starting to get a little bit less uh, addicted to social and not really paying much attention to mm. the streams and feeds of, the, of anything that isn't relevant other than people mashing things together like Twitter and mm. um, Instagram and Facebook. So it kind of starts to realise I've got more time to think about other things, which is it's been quite nice. That is nice. <laughs> um, I'll be with you also tonight uh, on Warren Davies. Um, in late June, uh, Attorney General uh, George Brandis and Immigration Minister Peter Dutton uh, attended a uh, cryptically named Meeting of the Five Eyes Intelligence Alliance in Ottawa. It uh, kind of reminds me of an episode of The Godfather. I was thinking um, Fargo for a second. <laughs> Fargo. Um, it comprises Australia, Canada, New Zealand, the United Kingdom and the United States, uh, the Five Eyes Intelligence Alliance. Uh, it's looking at the encryption of communication in platforms most of us use um, every day. Uh, through the lens of terrorism and counterterrorism, uh, they would like to quote develop our engagement with communications and technology companies to explore shared solutions unquote, which is um, uh, a very obsequious um, phrase. Um, we'll address that with Dr. Vanessa Teague of the University of Melbourne in just a few minutes. Uh, you probably aren't surprised, um, well you may be, that um, 50% of gamers are in fact women, um, and. I don't know, I for one spent as much time playing games with women as men growing up. But in Australia, as with uh, many other countries, they can be as little as 10% of the population of the games community, um, either as um, uh, writers, developers, um, on the business side of things. But if you do listen to our show, uh, you would be familiar with the massive effort from women in gaming uh, in Victoria and across Australia. Uh, coming up at ACME on July 25th is Codebreakers, which will celebrate the achievements of Australian and New Zealand women in gaming um, over two weeks, which is great. Uh, two of the organisers will be on the show with us uh, a little later on, um, which is awesome. Yeah, great. Um, before that, though, there is uh, a fair bit going on around the world um, that we wanted to talk to you about. Um, would either of you two be interested in talking about robots, by chance? <laughs> no, it's not my thing. Not your thing? No. <laughs> Joe, would you be interested in a soft... I'm with Elon in this one. <laughs> soft exoskeleton for you, Joe? If I needed one. All right. Well, or you, if it gave me, you know, extra strength. You have a very good chance what? that it may be needed by you or somebody in your family later what on. What was that role-playing game that used to be that was kind of like Dungeons & Dragons but it was based in the future that people used to play many moons ago? A physical board game? No, so it was... A, it was, a, it was Half-Life? It wasn't a board game. It was literally a where you you would roll oh. dice and... Which when you ah like like Dungeons and Dragons, I'm trying yeah. to, it, this reminds me of that where basically you could upgrade your your character with pretty much pieces. It's starting to actually become reality. I remember playing it maybe twice in my entire life. 
and geeking out a little bit, but then you remember that all these things that you thought would never happen are actually starting to happen in your own lifetime, which is quite yeah, impressive. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so um, it's a great story. Um, uh, it always seems to happen in Boston, but a company called Rewalk uh, has been talking up its soft exoskeleton um, for the better part of the year. Um, they've finally taken out for a spin um, their, their prototype uh, for um, people to have a look at. Um, it's actually been set up for uh, people who've had um, um, mobility issues or victims of strokes. Um, and in particular, they've been showing off the um, leg component of the device. If you could imagine like a, um, a rather black ops looking soccer shin guard with some pulleys attached to it. Um, the pulley is actually attached to a waistband and it's actually configured to um, match uh, the gait of your other leg. So say, for example, if you've um, lost um, uh, mobility on one side of your body, um, but you're still um, fine on the other side, it actually matches it. So that's the clever part. I, I really like the idea that um, uh, it plugs in in simple analog ways to the rest of your body. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. It's... Um, it's an interesting concept uh, and a little bit more um, realistic than, say, Matt Damon in Elysium sort of running around with, like, a, you know, a punching machine wrapped around his body. <laughs> it, looks, it looks very usable as well. I mean, we've, I'm sure we'll tweet the, uh, the link, but um, mm. looking at the way they've uh, pulled together and kind of considered that you could probably actually get away with wearing this without anyone ever noticing that you, you had it on, which is great. Throw it in the wash. It looks kind of, you know, fairly soft and... Um, yeah. yeah, it looks like it's kind of almost like a a compression pack with some extra with some wires attached to it which is quite interesting uh, I think it's a great idea that all this kind of stuff starting to happen that we're starting to see all these people and these accelerated programs and startups and people using this pushing the boundaries and actually having budget to try and trial it and get to a beta stage with that, that it could potentially then take off a lot of these things say maybe 10 years ago it'd just be someone with a sketch and an idea and it'd never come to anything because you could never actually physically make it and it's mm. now becoming more and more accessible so this is great I and mean, then um, like you say it happens in Boston a lot <laughs> <laughs> well MIT and, and Harvard and, and stuff yeah. I guess but um, a lot of the a lot of the companies are based there too to, to kind of um, suck the talent yeah. um one of the things that um, I did notice this morning, it's uh, potentially not so useful, but um, certainly of interest, uh, Amazon, uh, who are doing a lot in disrupting uh, retail and um, logistics around the world, obviously, uh, have launched a new service called Spark, which is uh, a shoppable feed of stories and photos aimed at Prime members. Um, so Prime is uh, obviously uh, quite a large service in the States and in other parts of the world and is um, uh, coming into um, Australia. Um, so, yeah, I think it's interesting in that uh, people are time poor and um, looking for stuff that's of interest is generally fairly uh, a useful thing to them. I find if I have to get out a device and start searching for stuff and reading reviews and stuff, it actually just puts me off, like booking a hotel or, or trying to find a pair of shoes or something like that. So I'll default to the old school way of, James, like, what are you wearing? Those sneakers look all right. Are they good? Great. Where can I buy them? Right. So the whole idea that you can configure something in um, Amazon and you can just buy everything straight off it makes a lot of sense. It, it was kind of like a Pinterest and Instagram combined, right? Mm. Um, my my frustrations with these bits and pieces of where, where people, the bigger agencies and businesses don't talk to each other. Mm. Think about the Apple and the and the Google. Like mm. How perfect would the Apple phone be if Google was fully integrated yeah. into it? Like, but it will never happen because of... World um, Gardens. Yeah. So th this is kind of looking at a glance at it. It's very. It looks literally like Instagram, doesn't it? But mm. 
um, the, pin, the, the Pinterest purchase option is in, included in there as well. But this would be great. I mean, especially if it starts to follow your friends and, and you start to get those recommendations or the mm. feeds and I, don't, I haven't read too much into it and they don't really give that much away. Mm. Um, but it's uh, it's quite interesting to see if that's the case. That it starts to if it has an algorithm, that starts to learn your purchase patterns and, and interest interests or even locations. Mm. If you're going to, I think the picture of Yosemite, mm. and mm. then you've been there, then it gives you references and related content to that. That'd be pretty good. Cool. Well, um, it should, should know that I'm into climbing and stuff, and then start yeah. Give, yeah. Get a new pair of shoes before you go. Yeah. See you traveling there. That'd yeah. be nice. They, ne- they never <laughs> seem to work that way, do they? We always we always get sold the idea that if, if you just put your data in and if you just do a bunch of stuff, yeah. everything will work out better for you and um, your life will be easier, more convenient. But it never quite works that way. Yeah. Well, another thing that's just finally launched in Australia, um, Australia, uh, is the um, the Google Home launches. Uh, it's they say it finally speaks Australian. Um, which is quite a uh, interesting thing that it's been here for a little while already. I okay, Google, get me dimmies. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, or in South Australia, scallop potatoes or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Because scall- what scallops? Oh, potato scallops. Potato scallops. Yeah, because scallops are scallops, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I get confused with stuff like that. Um, but it, it knows that um, it can connect to Stan, which is you know obviously. Um, uh, initially from Australia um, knows the weather today it, it, it understands your slang and a bit of the accent now uh, I'm kind of fortunate that I have a bit of an English accent left from my yesteryears and so does um, Paul who has got his or had his for about a year and has had it connected to making his coffee for him in the morning that's a very expensive tool to be able to turn your coffee machine on at, uh, at six lazy hours. lazy man yeah from his from his phone if this then that it turns on um so this is quite interesting news um the another piece of uh, bit of news that i've i've noticed uh, that came out it's um a vi- virtual reality being used i mean we've discussed it before about uh using vr to uh, help in uh, health and this is kind of the, the, the in um amsterdam they did a a test uh, and government funded um, piece on um, so what they've done is t- uh, big growth area for filmmakers is talking about in, in film that the potential of 7 billion US dollars worth of um, uh, could be added to the uh, to the um, film market um, by 2021, but they've all, but what they have done is then come up with the idea of how they could use that to uh, help improve people's um, well-being and uh, sense of joy. So they've did a test with ten. Uh, people um, in terms of music they do and uh, that, that they enjoy and like um, put into a virtual art space with the Centre of Contemporary Art um, and it was funded by the Dutch Grant Programme which was fantastic and this was just a way of trying to they worked out how, how people could sort of enjoy and feel um, excited about concerts but be more intense and couldn't potentially go there um, and this seemed to well, this helps with certain treatments of mental health problems as well that they've uncovered from this that's great like it's kind of getting rid of phobias you know those sort of things actually mm. using it for something um, positive rather than just entertainment. Yeah, we did um, <coughs> maybe uh, a couple of months back. We did talk about uh, an initiative to study um, uh, agoraphobia and social anxiety um, mm. using VR, so you could simulate a lot of experiences without having to put people into sort of um, situations that would trigger them and, and yeah. so forth. So 
Um, yeah. Claustrophobia as well has been one that's been worked in, uh, fear of heights and all those bits and pieces at the start of this time. The, there's, a, there's also, I mean, we haven't got a piece of article on here, but was, um, it came through my Slack channels today from work that they found that there's now websites popping up where people are putting in experiences for well-being, where you can do a yoga course mm. and put the VR on and sit in a yoga class, mm. or you can go and sit in a forest, mm. and then people are starting to mix in, do video footage, and then add animations within the video footage of a space within so you can start to see you know birds flying through or you can start to fly through the trees and it's all these sort of meditation pieces mm. that's kind of quite a nice way of being able to use this technology for other things other than just mm. especially if you're at work kind of stuck in some something or other just five minutes outside mm. of that would be nice you can get rid of some of my breakout spaces and just <laughs> here's a VR <laughs> um, I, I, I do have a, a, a fear but not of um, confined spaces a fear of uh, soap stars um, I do have a mild fear of Delta Goodrum um, Joe, <laughs> what's what's going on with Delta at the moment? Don't be afraid of Delta she's lovely um, so apparently Apple Inter- Entertainment are in trouble with the Advertising Standards Board um, there's a new Apple ad uh, where Delta is and I quote moving around in a motor vehicle with no clearly visible safety belt so in the ad she's but that's her stock in trade surely she's a performer well, she's in a vintage car right. and she is a passenger in the car. She's not driving and she's sticking her person out the window a little bit and singing and hollering. Mm. And so a complaint was made to the board where they said, uh, this does not promote safe driving. As a young woman who is a role model, this sets a bad example and is illegal. So Apple responded, they said, the, um, the advertisement under complaint does not depict, endorse or otherwise encourage any activities contrary to... Oh, my God. Anyway, their response was long. And um, <laughs> they they pointed out that because it was a vintage car, both of the performers in the ads were wearing lap belts. Mm. So they said that the people who complained about the ad probably weren't aware of this, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, mm. the board have upheld the complaint and um, they said that... Um, well, I think the losers out of this are us because, again, we'll have to pay more for <laughs> Apple products just as a tax on us being so stupid well, in such a nanny they, state. Apparently they have to re-edit the ad, and, but it's been pulled off of air mm. um, and it will be back once it's re-edited. There are a number of ads that I would like to get pulled off the air. <laughs> <laughs> Well, start complaining. If you do like to communicate uh, with your buddies and family um, uh, in a secure fashion, uh, you're probably using an encrypted service, um, WhatsApp, um, Signal. um, There's a, a whole bunch of different ones out there. Um, even if you're just doing some um, basic things by email or uh, social networks or what have you, there is a level of encryption there. One of the problems this does create is that uh, terrorists, uh, criminals, um, ne'er-do-wells uh, are out there making use of this. Um, they might just be using chat on a games um, service. Uh, so uh, our governments and uh, security services are challenged with um, both allowing us the freedoms to communicate uh, in an encrypted fashion and also trying to figure out how they can stay on top of uh, communication that is um, against our own interests or or the national interests. Uh, One of the places this has been discussed recently is through the Five Eyes Security Alliance, which is, um, I guess, a bunch of Commonwealth countries and the United States. Uh, And they have recently been discussing um, how to get that balance right. We're now joined by Dr. Vanessa Teague of University of Melbourne, uh, who follows this matter closely. Uh, Vanessa, thanks for coming in tonight. Hi, Warren. So, uh, 
Five Eyes, should we be concerned about what they have been discussing or is it just a, another conference where they get together and um, um, sort of chew the fat a bit? Well, I think it's interesting because if you read their communicate, if you read their communicate, you can see that what they've actually written down their agreement on is a fair bit less than what our government is telling us. So the exact thing in their publication is to develop our engagement with communications and technology companies to explore shared solutions. Mm. So you see that that's a total and firm commitment to explore. Mm. Sounds, sounds a little bit like Yes Minister, doesn't it? Right. We, we, agree, to, we agree to do something, potentially. Exactly. We agree to kind of see whether we might think of something. Oh. Which is a lot less than what the Attorney General and the Prime Minister seem to be saying, which is that they're convinced that something will work and they're going to do it. Uh, that sounds like yes, Prime Minister. So a graduation <laughs> of severity. Exactly. I heard Father Ted. That's what I thought of as soon as you said that. I was thinking Father Ted when he's trying to get the, fe- get, trying to get the festival on. <laughs> so is there a... Um, is there... Uh, within the five eyes, is there um, a differences of opinion on what um, good encryption is, um, how much access should be given to encrypted services... Uh, is Australia the 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 sheriff of the five, or is Malcolm Turnbull and Brandis just kind of talking tough for for media? I don't know what goes on inside the five eyes. Mm. I certainly know there's a lot of agreement among the cryptography community that weakening little bits of the internet is likely to make it less secure for everybody. Mm. So this discussion, on the one hand, in some ways, it's being framed in a political way, in a as a aspiration of a nice world in which good police officers can look at the communications of bad guys. And Mm. that sounds like a nice world and we all agree. Mm. But if you actually look at the engineering of how the maths might be made to work, Mm. every single time that this kind of thing has been tried, it's turned out that the sorts of, every time we know about, the holes that have been inserted to help the good guys spy on the bad guys turn out to be exploitable by other people too. Mm. In other words, we think that we're making it better for law enforcement, but we're also making it easier for organised crime or for foreign nation states to spy on us. So an example of that was the WannaCry um, yes. uh, scenario um, from earlier this year, I think, where the I think the NSA right. had been involved in using endpoint detection or device detection of encrypted messages, and that was easy to, to exploit. Is that right? Is that right? So the WannaCry is a great example. Because that, that wasn't a deliberately inserted backdoor, as far as we know. That was just kind of lucky noticing of a vulnerability in old versions of Windows. But rather than telling the manufacturer as soon as they could and getting that vulnerability patched. The allegation is that the NSA uh, weaponised it, used it, exploited the vulnerability, wrote some code that allowed them to use that to break into those systems, presumably mm. to find out what terrorists and pedophiles and other bad people were doing. Mm. Unfortunately, the NSA itself had a bit of a security breach and their tools mm. for doing that kind of stuff got leaked on the web. Mm. And so the bad guys found the tool, turned it into ransomware, mm and then used it to try and extort a great quantity of money from people all over the world, including most of the UK health system. Mm. Interesting. Do, do you... Uh, obviously, you're sort of um, quite close to the, the encryption community. Do you... Putting an objective hat on, do you see uh, an endpoint for where the mathematics and the science of encryption and the desire for countries to understand what's being talked about finds an easy, easy sort of middle ground? I think we have to set policy with an understanding of what's possible and what's not. So Mm. a policy can't afford to follow this aspiration of what a nice world looks like. It Mm. has to really be informed by some practical, uh, actual understanding of what mathematics can do and can't do. So 
you probably know this terrible quote about mathematics that has more or less gone all over the world about uh, a journalist asks the Prime Minister, won't the laws of mathematics trump the laws of Australia? And what she means is, isn't it the case that any weakness you introduce into the mathematics of encryption will inevitably be used by the bad guys? And I would say, yes, that's true. She actually asked as a second question, an even more interesting question. She says, aren't you also forcing everyone to decentralise systems as a result? Now, I don't think she expressed it very clearly, but what she's saying is, won't the bad guys... If you insist on weakening the um, end-to-end encryption being used by ordinary people, won't the bad guys just download something else mm. and use the thing that hasn't been carefully um, weakened by the government? Mm. So the Prime Minister gave a, an answer to the question about mathematics, which probably wasn't what he meant to say. At least I hope that wasn't what he meant to say. But he didn't answer the second question at all. To me, the second question actually seems even more fundamental to trying to get this thing to work. So on the one hand, if we weaken the stuff that everybody's using, then that's going to lower the security for all of us. On the other hand, every all, everybody who's really nasty and really trying to hide from the government is just going to download something else. So I actually found on the web five minutes ago a end-to-end encrypted brand new app. This is not from me. Um, I would never dream of taking the mickey in this way. Okay, maybe I would, but I didn't do it in this case. If you look at brandis.io, you can see that some programmers have decided to just implement an end-to-end encryption for everyone. And it says, welcome to Brandis. This app is intended to illustrate the ease with which secure end-to-end encryption can be achieved in a modern web browser, blah, 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 blah. In other words, if you didn't want to use Facebook or Google or any of those things that are under discussion with the Australian government at the moment, you can use this instead. So I have no idea who put this up on the web, but you can see how easy it is to implement something that doesn't come under this regime. Mm. So, I mean, back to your back to your previous point as well. I do I do quite like this. I, I like the icon for for that service Christ. as well. A nice pair of glasses. Um, Joe, you'll, Joe, you'll appreciate that. <laughs> um, back, back to your previous point about um, if we do weaken the services that we all use, um, uh, surely it will just push the um, people that we actually want to find onto another service. What's what's the answer there? Do surveillance agencies and and governments and people who want to understand what's being communicated need to be more sophisticated about how they surveil or? without necessarily um, reducing the quality of the services involved? Um, Well, there's a couple of different answers to that. I think one answer would be to try to implement uh, device compromises instead. In other words, to try to... I've seen the wire. It worked great. Like, all you had to do was, like, you know, reach into their burners and, like, move the towers (laughs) around. Surely that's the way. Like, this was only 10 years ago, people. Surely we haven't forgot how to do this. Yeah, exactly. Is there yeah. is there other ways, though, sort of from a technology point of view, that if in terms of encryption information, I'm okay with someone knowing that I have a account with a product. So knowing that people that you have to sort of, do you know, um, trying to how to explain. You, you know, when you uh, you have to show that you you have to show your ID to be able to purchase, like get your driver's license or get, get your passport. You have to prove you are who you say you are. Is there a way of being able to just prove who you say you are for certain products so that then? Once you're on there, then what you're actually using is completely encrypted or safe, but you've ha- you've already had to identify yourself before you're using it, so that they know who's using what. So better authentication of users oh, on yeah. services. So, yeah, basically. Could you? Is, um, mm. Not that I'm kind of championing any of this. I'm like, that could that is that another way of doing it? So then it's well, it's probably cheaper as well. Well, it's pretty hard <laughs> to buy a phone in Australia without giving away some pretty detailed information about who you are, 
And metadata yeah. retention was supposed to be the solution to this problem, remember? Which, again, has exactly the same characteristic where we store a whole lot of very intimate personal information about ourselves and that's supposed to help the good guys catch terrorists. Mm. Now, I don't know whether it's working or not. On the one hand, it seems to be working better than the British uh, investigatory yeah. powers laws. On the other hand, if it's not working anymore, then maybe we should stop storing it because, as Will Ockenden and a bunch of others have shown, it gives away a tremendous amount of information mm. that could in turn be used by the bad guys. And it is difficult to get a new phone in Australia without sharing information, but a second-hand phone you right, can buy on eBay very easily. Yeah, interesting. <laughs> yeah, so interesting pieces there. I think this... I, God, these things... This is the complexity of all these new... New avenues and opportunities to communicate. I mean, I communicate on way too many different platforms just to get my day, get through my day, and um, it's making it very difficult for sort of the, especially in government because it's such a slow process to get things passed and things organised and change, change their processes that they kind of slowly getting further and further behind how to keep up with this. It's, I mean, they're doing, doing some really good headway in terms of the Digital Transformation Office and bits and pieces of how to try and catch up, but it is a very difficult process, right? Yeah. yeah. Can you explain the, the concept of key escrow? Is that right? Am yes, key escrow. So this is an, an alternative to weakening the encryption process? Um, this seems okay. What, what is it? I would say it's one way of weakening the encryption process. So this term backdoor is not very well defined, but I guess key escrow would count as one particular kind of backdoor. And the idea is roughly, without key escrow, if you're just using an ordinary end-to-end -end encryption app, then your computer or your device is encrypting the message with a key that's known only to the other person that you're intending to talk to. So that's great. Now, key escrow means, exactly like financial escrow kind of means, it means you also encrypt the key to that communication with yet another key that the government can, that the government has. Mm. So the idea is supposed to be that under a certain appropriate circumstances, the good guys can come and... Um, use their special government key to decrypt the key that you used to encrypt your message. It's a key to the key. Correct. So, in principle, if it's perfectly secure and everybody involved is a good guy, then it's fine. So note that this is something that you specifically have to implement at your end. So if mm. you're a terrorist or a pedophile mm. and you just choose not to implement the key escrow, mm. then it doesn't work. Mm. Um, the history of key escrow around the clipper chip in the United States was actually that it was shown very early by some security researchers in the United States that the particular way they designed in the key escrow actually made it really easy for just about anybody to read mm. the key. So it wasn't a carefully and securely encrypted key that only legitimate law enforcement mm. could read. It was actually pretty easy for just about anybody. Well, that's to a design it. flaw. So that's that, a design flaw. So they got it wrong. doesn't mean the principle doesn't work. Yeah, and that's an important insight. I agree very much. So they got that design wrong. doesn't necessarily mean the principle doesn't work, mm. but it is an example of a deliberately inserted vulnerability actually being worse than you thought. So if the system had been much simpler and had been designed directly to encrypt only with the other person's key, then that would have been a simple design and it would have been easier to make it secure mm. because this extra level of complexity was added in order to let the government read communications. Mm. It turned out that then a bug in that extra system 
allowed the reading of the communication. So on the one hand, what you're saying in principle is true, right? Mm. In principle, if that process was perfectly implemented, then it wouldn't necessarily give the bad guys an opportunity. Mm. On the other hand, there's this kind of general pattern in security that if you make it as simple and as focused on security as you possibly can, then you're probably going to stuff it up anyway, but at least it's a, the probability of stuffing it up is relatively low compared to if you make it extra complex and you introduce some ways of some people reading it, the probability that you stuff up that and mm. expose the communications to the bad guys as well is a lot higher. I'm going to put a theory forward that maybe like uh, in Twin Peaks, all the security agents should just be running around with um, pens and notepads perhaps. Maybe we should just take the computers off them well, when you go to work. <laughs> rumour has it that Vladimir Putin doesn't use electronic communications very often. I have no Ooh. idea whether that's true because I never tried to spy on him. But Whereas so presidents that. have the Faraday cage and their little tents that they set up. As they should. Very interesting. We'll stay across this topic with interest this year. And uh, thanks for coming in and um, busting some of those uh, encryption myths with us tonight. Good to talk to you, Aaron. Hey, if you like playing games and if you're in Melbourne uh, roughly from around the 25th of July, I reckon you should take a couple of weeks off. Uh, Codebreakers is coming up at Acme. Uh, It's the first uh, festival uh, of its kind, um, celebrating the role of women in games from Australia and New Zealand. And we're now joined in studio by Helen Stuckey and Lena Van Deventer of Codebreakers. Uh, th- thanks for coming in, both of you. Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks for having us. Uh, Favourite game of all time? Oh, Got to start with the hardest question I could possibly ask. <laughs> so cruel. Um, lemmings for nostalgia. Oh, uh, yes. So oh. I'm going to stick with that. First game I lost a night's sleepover. Yeah, oh, fair enough. Oh, nice. Mine's been sullied because the creator has, you know, gone on to do different things that I would prefer him to do. But Minecraft has got to be up there for me. Pretty amazing. Both of them Pretty are amazing. similar in ways. Uh, the the patterns and kind of the hypnosis of of both of those. <laughs> um, so. Obviously, fast forward um, a, a couple of years and you're both working um, to bring Codebreakers to Melbourne and, and hopefully further afield. What, what's the um, driving motivation for, for the two of you for helping bring this to life? Mine is to get, uh, to get it more normalised that women work in games and to, um, to, to make it not a strange thing when people see that women work in games to get it more normalised and to, to, for people to see it modelled. Um, you know, that old phrase, if you can't see it, you can't be it. Um, that's probably my motivation for wanting to be involved in the curatorial advisory committee to get this going and to get these faces in front of young girls and women and, and to just see that this is something they could do if they wanted to. Mm. And I sort of come from a different position because although I'm at RMIT now... Um, in the games program there. I was the inaugural games curator at ACME, so I'm really interested in uh, the curation of video games in museum culture and the opportunities to explore games as cultural artefacts in that environment and sort of giving people that kind of hands-on opportunity to play games. Um, And we have some extraordinary creative uh, Australian and New Zealand female women designers um, who absolutely deserve to be celebrated and their work deserves to be seen and and just an understanding because most people don't know who makes games. Mm. Um, they don't think about who makes games. They, they kind of forget the kind of creatives behind all these incredible works. So it's a really great opportunity to bring people's attention to uh, the diversity of game makers. So just tell us a little bit more about the... Uh, about the uh, event exhibit and the exhibition. What would people experience to see? What's what's going on during that sort of that two week window? 
Well, it's an it's an exhibition, so it's a hands-on gameplay. So it's full in gameplay. The gallery. There's lots of different games as well as yep. visuals and visuals, uh, concept and art, interviews with uh, the makers. Yeah. Mm. And it's um, it's more than just two weeks as well. It's until November. Oh, so I, yeah. Sorry, I was, I was subconsciously saying August. I was <laughs> no, like, that's a short no, so it's an exhibition like, more yeah, than yeah. a festival. Yes, it yeah. is. Yeah. I take my long distance glasses off and <laughs> look at my screen appropriately. No, that's fine. Warren was saying to take two weeks off, you know, to really go there every day, I think, is what he was trying to get at, to, you know, be really keen. <laughs> but it's, it's definitely there for longer than two weeks, so you can check it out. Uh, in terms of uh, getting a, a program like this up, uh, how much work's involved? How many uh, game contributors do you need to speak to to have 20 or 30 or 50 um, represented at, at a festival? Is this Has this been a, a year's work or, or longer? Well, we're, we've, we've worked with the ACME curatorial team on this. We worked as consultants. So um, we were basically kind of pitching ideas about who we thought would be good and... Um, mm. Uh, who we'd like to see represented and try and get a diversity of kind of works from kind of interesting indie games to more mainstream games to uh, games like Need for Speed, like racing games. Like there's a real diversity of games in there mm. uh, from, you know, um, space trading games, driving games, uh, tower defence games, extraordinary games, Sparks, um, which was created by Maru Niho Niho in uh, New Zealand in conjunction with um, researchers and clinical uh, psychologists at Auckland University, which is a game that's being used to treat depression in teenagers. Uh, it plays like an RPG. It uses cognitive therapy um, techniques uh, and um, it's been reviewed by the British Medical Journal and shown significant uh, decrease of uh, incident in depression and anxiety for teenagers. So um, there's a real diversity of work. So, yeah, we tried to scope. Mm. And we tried to make uh, make sure there was a diversity of roles as well, that it wasn't all programmers and artists. We've got um, Lisey Keynes in there and she's a producer. And, you know, it's, it's important to look at these other roles People often, if they do know anything about how games are made, they associate the programming and the art, um, and but not usually the, the satellite roles around that. And we wouldn't have games if it wasn't for producers and we wouldn't have games if it wasn't for the community managers and the you know administrators and all these important roles. So we wanted to make sure there was enough room for um, not just the programmers and the artists to be held up as well. I mean, it's fascinating. I wasn't until a friend of mine started working at uh, EA and, and I went to visit him and I saw how many different people are involved and that's when it kind of, like you were saying, you forget that how many people are involved and who is involved in creating these products. Mm. And it wasn't until then that you realised how much detail, attention to detail, how much effort is involved in a, in a game. Even say that the bigger games, you think that the budgets are just as big, if not bigger, uh, than uh, Hollywood um, yeah, in excess of yeah. Hollywood blockbusters now, yeah, and, and, the, and the revenue that they generate is much bigger as well. Yeah, um, and and people follow around their favourite cinematographers and their favourite directors, but we don't get that as much in games. We, we like if you're in the game development community, you definitely have your superheroes and your you know veterans and the people you look up to. But from a consumer standpoint, for the player, I think they're probably less likely 
to have their their heroes unless unless they've really been affected by a piece of work. Yeah, I mean, mm. and games these days are just starting to get more and more involved. Where it feels like you're part, you're actually creating your own movie that you're part of, which mm. is kind of it scares me because I've stopped playing games pretty much around Populous Lemmings era because I, and <laughs> I think the last game I played was uh, on the Nintendo 64 was the Bond game. Yeah, I got too good at it. That was a good one. Um, That's an excellent game. And I decided to. Uh, I think I think I'm like an Alcoholics Anonymous where I, it was the point where I, I had to stop, otherwise I knew I would never leave this this world. And it, now technology is getting better and better. I'm finding it harder and harder to resist like, yep. to play games. Stop resisting. <laughs> One of the games that redefined the shooter, so you went out on a high. Yep. <laughs> yeah, Need for Speed 3 as well. Yep. Well, yeah, you should come along and, and, and um, rekindle your love for them maybe at the exhibition. In my secret way. <laughs> <yeah. laughs> Uh, in terms of the, the um, uh, you were talking about uh, producers and um, uh, I guess facilitators of games and, and so forth, mm-hmm. what, what are some of the things that we do really well in Melbourne um, uh, with women working in gaming? What, what are some of the roles that you just wouldn't think about when you see people on trams or trains uh, heading into work? I noticed you've got uh, Catherine Neal here who's a mm-hmm. narrative designer. Yep. Um, what are some of the things that, I mean, we all understand what a developer is or, or a writer or a designer. Mm. Um, are there other things out there? Absolutely. And narrative designer is uh, a term that that a lot of people struggle with because they just think that means that they're the writer and the writer and the narrative designer are two very different things when you get down to the nuts and bolts of it. Um, a narrative designer is responsible for the entire design of the context and the story of what's happening, even if there is no text, even if there is, you know, it, it, there's always going to be context to the environment that you're playing in um, and a reason for something to be there. And the narrative designer, it's their role to to step up to do that. I think we've got a really strong writing community here in Melbourne specifically. Um, we are a UNESCO city of literature. It makes sense. We've got a strong um, literature background. And I think... The writers' festivals over the last couple of years have been really interested in games and digital writing and interactive fiction. So I think um, it's a pretty exciting time to be a woman in games who also is a writer, and that's me, which I'm lucky. (laughs) I'm biased in saying that. But uh, I think there's a lot of those auxiliary roles that um, are now starting to... um, butt up against existing roles but in a slightly different way and we're getting screenwriters too getting interested in games now because of VR and you know the thought of their screenplay becoming interactive by being in a headset you know game designers and screenwriters are about to start getting more intimate than they have in the past as well and that's really exciting and I think um, that's another pathway for more women to get involved as well. And do you have something in particular that you're really excited to share something that you've been um telling everybody you run into in the, in the past couple of weeks that you can't believe it's on for Code Breakers? Ooh. Well, I have to, oh, I've have got to pick to a favourite. <laughs> That's mean. <laughs> I am looking forward to Catherine Neal's new game, yep. which is about Elizabethan astrologer uh, who's a bit of a charlatan. So it's an unusual theme for a game. Oh, no, I've been waiting, I've been waiting for that game for a long time. <laughs> I'm surprised that came but she's before. But she writes, she writes such a wry, funny... Yeah, she's got a, a great tone. She's very, very satirical and very knowing about games. So that's, yeah, I really yep. enjoy her work. Yeah. Um, are there any events during the exhibition that we should schedule into our diaries? There is a talk um, the day after um, the exhibition opens, which is um, the talk is on July 26th at 6 p.m. 
p.m. I believe, and that's called Breaking the Code. And Helen will be on there along with um, a number of along other with, yeah uh, Hex. with Hex from we used to be on Good Game, um, Brooke Mags, Nicole Stark, and Doctor Helen Stuckey. Yeah, so it's you, Nicole Stark yeah, <laughs> from Ninja Pizza Girl, and yes. Brooke Mags, uh, the Gun Between. Another beautiful narrative that's, game. Yeah, that's the one I was going to oh. say um, is probably the one I'm looking forward to the most, apart from Catherine's, which is also amazing. They're all amazing. It's hard to pick a favourite, but uh, yeah. but I think uh, the Gardens Between is a good um, example for non-text-based narrative design because there's no text in the game yet. You're still going through this story and this this world that they've they've created that she's created. Mm. I mean, just onto the onto the actual career path of become, of getting into games. I'm coming from a very uh, uneducated platform having trying to have my blinkers on for a long time um, what sort of like, how do people get into this how do, how do you start to find what roles are available to be within gaming and then be able to sort of branch out into that I mean the screenwriter thing kind of makes sense that you can kind of because there is it's a storytelling as well and how, how do you what, I've got no idea other than the titles I can see on here that's producers and programmers and designers and I probably could think of a few off the top of my head what other how do you find out how to get skilled up in this to be able to get an opportunity well, there's the traditional pipeline of university studies and further education and that sort of thing. We've got a lot of game design degrees in Australia at the moment and, and a lot of graduates coming in. So it's going to be a very dynamic time for um, indies in the next couple of years when we get flooded with all these new excited people. Um, but I think it's just a matter of if you're interested in it, you'll be drawn to one particular, or more if you're lucky, one particular discipline and you'll just get, you'll just get you know, smitten with it and start researching and start looking it up and start making your own things. And um, game making tools have been democratised so much now. They're, they're free, uh, a lot of them. Um, it's very easy for you with no experience to make your own game. And um, I encourage everyone to give it a shot because, yeah, it's free and it's, and it's fun. It's a really rapidly changing profession too so it's you know it's quite a volatile profession it's always changing in in um, what's required I mean I'm at RMIT University in the games program there and other as well as kind of art and coding and production skills you know we also teach the sort of things like community management and streaming as a profession mm. um, because these all become a large part of actually how games operate now in the on the production side yeah Hopefully, uh, if not this year, maybe next year, uh, we will see some of these people uh, appearing at Codebreakers. Um, both of you, thanks for coming in tonight. Um, we're very excited for you. And uh, 25th of July will come around really quickly. Mm. Uh, so um, I hope you have a great fortnight slash rest of the year. <laughs> Thank, <laughs> Thank you. you very much. Uh, if you do like a bit of Star Trek, I'm guessing uh, some of you out there might. Um, there is a great virtual reality game with uh, IBM involved. James, what's what's IBM and Star Trek doing together? Well, they've kind of uh, can, uh, used the Watson IBM Watson platform to create a uh, virtual reality game that uh, learns. Um, it's been I've literally spotted this today. Uh, I thought it'd be quite interesting point to to bring up that this is starting to happen more and more that the the narr narrative of gaming is starting to be able to be more 
attuned to you rather than being the same story that everyone plays mm. I mean it's been happening for years but now it's starting to get really uh, switched on um, but it's also starting to use your language your voice to be able to communicate with people within the game and be able to talk back to them as well so I thought that was pretty interesting so what, what would be an example there you're on the bridge Scotty's to your left I'm trying to look for one here where you can have vo- voice control where you can say you have the comm and you can actually delegate within the game I thought it was quite <laughs> interesting <laughs> um, I have to bring these two up even though we may only get time for one because I, I saw them and I haven't clicked on these uh, on these articles because they made me laugh just by what you pulled out for them 22,000 people agreed to clean toilets for Wi-Fi well, the cost, the cost of living, it's, it's really high these days. Not everyone can afford um, their own Wi-Fi network. Um, a company has um, pointed out the uh, onerous um, security um, and um, obligatory arrangements we have with services like Wi-Fi. Um, nobody reads the complicated agreements. Um, do you guys sign up for Wi-Fi networks? Would you, like, if you're at a sporting event or if you're on a plane or something like that, do you generally give it a go or do you kind of keep your task? The only one I tend to do is the one that's on... Uh, at the at the airport, mm. but you obviously know quite often that you know always having to give away your email address and information, and they're probably um, reading what you're what you're searching for as well. Purple is a Manchester-based company that specialises in running Wi-Fi hotspots for brands like Legoland, Outback Steakhouse, Pizza Express. Um, uh, recently, they came clean about its two-week experiment in which it inserted a community service clause uh, into its terms of service agreement. Uh, more than 22,000 people did sign up um, to clean toilets uh, in the Manchester area, which from my understanding of Manchester is um, a pretty grim task. Yeah. But um, interesting. I, I think it's a, term, it's a, it's a perennial thing. Um, we've got these big, long agreements that only lawyers will understand and we have to agree to them. Intentionally um, so, and it needs to be sort of simplified so we can all actually know what we're agreeing to before we agree to it, right? It is crazy. Um, the other one mm. uh, is security robot blunders into fountain in Washington, D.C. Oh, would you like to know more about this one? There's another, yeah, there's another one I, I saw uh, today that made me laugh being from Manchester. Mm. We, I think it was when we were, I was on last time, we were talking about the new bikes. That mm. we, I've started to see them all around Melbourne. They're everywhere now. They're yeah. everywhere now, right? Um, the very similar company is now in... Um, uh, Manchester, and they were saying, you know, that on they don't need won't need repairing for more than f- after four years. They'll need um, they've got the Wi-Fi, you know, the, the, the GPS location technology in them. That it's already been uncovered that within four days, the, uh, the it's lit, written, written on the BBC website that within four days, the Scallies have understand have figured out how to deactivate the GPS and stop the locks from locking. And people are trying to find these, and my, the only ten percent or twenty percent of the bikes are left in the CBD, and the rest have all been like basically oh, assimilated uh, into the suburbs. Well, that, that explains it. <laughs> yeah. um, the the genteel suburbs near my house have been um, <laughs> have been um, had bikes dropped everywhere. Yeah. So um, no one's going to hack into but the yeah, onto the robot fountain. Um, no. Well, basically, uh, a little robot known as the K5 Autonomous Data Machine uh, drew sympathy and jeers on Monday after it stumbled down a set of steps and into a fountain at Washington Harbour, uh, an office and retail complex in the Georgetown neighbourhood in Washington, D.C. Um, it does look uh, yeah, like a very large egg uh, on wheels. Uh, it's 1.5 metres tall, <laughs> weighs 136 kilograms, so it's a, it's a big fella. Uh, it can travel up to five kilometres an hour. Um, it just took a wrong turn, apparently. But um, I don't know, a little bit of sympathy for robots would be great. Um, they're they're going to be doing a lot of the work that um, we don't like to do. So um, if they want to take a bath, that's fine. Um, thank you very much to our guests tonight, Vanessa, and to Helen and Lena. Um, it's been a fun show. Um, we'll be back next week on Bite Into It with a different group of humans. Yeah.
This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.